We are going to look at John chapter 15. And if you were with us last week, this passage that we're about to look at is found in the moments the night before Christ's crucifixion. So he's in the upper room with his closest disciples, and really he is preparing them for his imminent crucifixion and then his physical absence from their lives. And last week we looked at this passage called The Vine and the Branches, where Jesus essentially gives them the instruction to remain connected with him. Even though he's going away, they must remain connected to him. They must be abiding with him, listening to him, experiencing his love, continuing to allow his words to shape their lives together. And as they do that, as they walk in dependence to him, he will make them fruitful. And we talked about the different ways that Christ intends to make us fruitful, because of course, these instructions are for us as well as for them. And we talked about fruitfulness being the way that Christ wants to reshape us, that we are branches and he is the vine and we are intended to look like him, that Christ intends to reshape our character, to bear fruit in our lives, to make us people full of love and patience and kindness and in many ways to display Christ's character in an imperfect way to the world around us. And we talked about that kind of fruit. But we also talked about the idea that Christ intends to bear fruit in us, not just in our lives, but also in the lives of the people around us. That Christ would work through us to bear fruit. And what that fruit is, is it's a fruit of harvest. It's speaking about the way that Christ intends to use his disciples, to use ordinary men and women like you and me, that we might have an impact on the lives of the people around us. And we're going to unpack a little bit more about that principle tonight. But as we hear, as we do that, as we hear that expectation that we would go into the world, it's important that you hear the warning, because we're going to go to the next passage along. And it really, at its simplest, the next passage is Christ's warning to his disciples. As they seek to impact the world around them, Christ has one simple warning for them, and that is this, you will be hated He's saying loudly and clearly, you will be hated. Because he is hated, so you too will be hated as you seek to be a blessing to the people around you. I want to unpack that warning, really, uh, for you this evening. We're going to start from chapter 15, verse 16. It says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then we come to today's passage. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause, without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let me pray. Lord, we want to ask that we would hear your words to us tonight, Lord, that by your, by your spirit you would come and shape, shape hearts this evening, that you would come and make us a people who are ready to bear the name of Christ, whatever the consequences, that we would be those who love you and are willing to suffer for your name, that we would be those who display your distinctive character, that we are those who are salty, full of light. And as we do that, Lord, that we would point to you and your glory. Come and work in our hearts this evening. Amen. So... I wonder what you thought as I read those verses to you. I suspect many of you would have felt some scepticism. You would have almost felt, is this real? Because it doesn't feel very real, does it? You heard the um, warning that there will be a day coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And you may think, well, that's not really happened to me. This doesn't really feel that relevant to everyday life in 21st century London. Actually, I think it is. I think it really is, and uh, this is real. Let me give you a few examples. And I'll start with the, the name of a lady called Hatun Tash. And Hatun uh, is a, a lady who is from Turkey, who came to London in her mid-twenties, and she became a Christian. She was from an observant Muslim family, and uh, she'd grown up, she was actually the daughter of an imam, and uh, she came to London and found herself being drawn into a church community and heard and understood uh, the claims that Christ makes and she responded. She gave her life to follow Jesus. And um, obviously, there's a lot more to the story than that. Uh, but she became an evangelist. She became passionate to speak and tell others about Jesus, and particularly those of her former faith from Islam. And uh, she's now an evangelist. She was trained with a, a ministry called Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And she now works for a ministry called Defend Christ, Critique Islam. And in December last year, a man called Edward Little, who was a Muslim, sorry, a, a guy who converted to Islam, was uh, convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for attempting her murder. He, uh, he was apprehended by the police as he was about to buy a gun. He had the, the money on him, and he was about to buy a gun and was intending to kill Hatun Tash because of her evangelistic work. In fact, Hatun has experienced great persecution. She's been stabbed in the face 
uh, at Speaker's Corner. She regularly um, kind of speaks and debates at a place called Speaker's Corner, which is a kind of public debating space in North, North London where people uh, debate different ideas, including religious philosophies. Um, she's been stabbed in the face. She's been uh, kind of mobbed by a crowd shouting at her. She's been uh, rejected and by her family, shunned by her family. And, of course, the question is why. Why does she keep... Uh, proclaiming Christ despite the persecution she experiences. And this is what she says, the one who has holes in his hands, the one who has holes in his feet, who put himself on the cross for me is worthy enough for the whole world to know his glorious love. Is worthy enough for the whole world to know his glorious love. And with that, presumably, he is worthy enough for any sacrifice that she is willing to make. So you have Hatun. But actually, it's not just Hatun. This is a, a global phenomenon. If we zoom out from London and Britain for a moment, you'll see that around the world, many Christians experience extreme persecution. Uh, one report by a, a charity called Open Doors, um, which is a kind of specialist charity in this area, said 360 million Christians around the world experience high or extreme levels of persecution. That's about one in seven Christians. This was in 2023. And she gave, they give a few examples in the report. They speak about how in Somalia, if a man or woman is found with a Bible or Christian literature, it's likely that they will be executed with the approval of their family. Uh, in Eritrea, independent Protestants, that's basically people like us, who work in, worship in an independent a Protestant church, are considered foreign agents and experience persecution from the security services. In Iran, pastors are regularly um, arrested and, and experience lengthy prison sentences. And in Nigeria, they estimated that um, approximately 10,000 Christians were abducted and killed for their faith. And they spoke about how one uh, group of Christians, 41 Christians, uh, were killed in their church um, on Pentecost Sunday last year. Around the world, there are millions of Christians under threat experiencing persecution. This is real. And even in the UK, although we wouldn't experience anything like, generally speaking, the persecution that I've just described, many of us would feel that there is some social challenge with associating ourselves with Christ, that we might not want to own the label of Christ or Christian in public, in our offices or in our friendships, because we think, well, people might judge us, they might think we're a bit weird, maybe a bit narrow-minded, a bit bigoted... Maybe worse than that, maybe might withdraw from our friendship or, or even kind of judge us quietly in their heads at work. And in fact, it's some of the reason why some of us don't really want to be associated with the name of Christ, even though we are Christians. And the question is why? And what you have to hear really loudly and clearly is the reason the world might distance itself from you or might even hate you. Why? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me. Christ is saying, no, you've got to see loudly and clearly that the world hates me. And you might say, well, how is that? And at one level, you've got to remember that just before this, in the passage we just read last week, it spoke about um, those who love Christ, obey his commands. So in one sense, those who fail to obey him, who ignore him, in one sense, we could say they, they hate him. They show themselves to hate him by their ignorance and rejection of him and his authority. But actually, I think you go deeper than that and see, really, all the way through the Gospels, we see some people responding to Christ, some being drawn towards him, but others who hate him. 
In fact, just the next day after these parting instructions, Christ will be crucified. And that's not a kind of, I don't know, political act. That is a popular uprising. The crowd are whipped up into a frenzy and they're crying for Christ's crucifixion. The Jewish leaders are opposed to Christ. There is a kind of murderous mob wishing for Christ's execution. And then you have to say, why? Why does Christ elicit such a negative, even visceral reaction? I think there's a number of different reasons for that, which are still true to this day. The first is that Christ confronts, Jesus confronts the evil within humanity. Jesus confronts the evil within humanity. The the verdict that Christ puts on every human being is to quickly identify the reality of what the Bible calls sin. That there is an inherent rebellion at the heart of humanity that we don't necessarily in our own in ourselves want to obey God. And from within us come all sorts of evil thoughts and evil desires and even evil actions. And Jesus puts it in John chapter 7. And he says, they hate me or they do not uh, move towards me. Why? Because I tell them their world words are evil. In John chapter 7, he said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that, it wor- that its works are evil. And of course we have to see that Christ wounds to heal. He, he is like a, a doctor who gives a negative diagnosis, who reveals the reality of the sickness within humanity so that we might come to him and receive the healing and restoration and reconciliation with God that we each desperately need. But it begins by confronting the sickness within humanity. That's the first reason why Jesus elicits a negative reaction in many. But going further than that, I think Christ speaks of how With this negative reaction, there's a kind of withdrawal from Christ because we don't want to reveal the evil within each one of us. We don't want to have to open up our lives and to really look within the kind of murky mess within and have to face up to the reality of those twisted motivations, those broken desires, and even the very thoughts that we'd rather have no one else see about us. And so we withdraw from him says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Christ, the great light, who shines his light into every one of our lives. And the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. We don't like our sin to be exposed. Even those who of us who follow Christ, who know that there is forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that actually bringing our sin to the light is good for us, even we are reluctant to do so. We'd rather not have the reality exposed. And you see this all the way through humanity. Think about the um, scandal that is engulfing the post office right now. Uh, in the UK, there's, uh, there was a, there's a scandal because there was an IT system called the Horizon IT system. And basically, various different uh, local managers or what they might call postmasters uh, were accused of theft. 
of stealing money. And actually, well, they weren't actually stealing, but the, the IT system was broken and was accusing them of theft. And what was really interesting is this went on for a number of years, and they were taken to uh, court, and some of them were even in prison for theft. But as, as it becomes obvious to the post office, to the upper echelons, that there was indeed a problem, there is a resistance within the post office leadership that basically they are unwilling to admit to the problem. And in fact, there's, I think there was a, an email recorded from the head of legal to the other lead, members of the leadership team that essentially said, we, we don't want to go there. We don't want to unpack the, uh, the IT system because therein lies reputational risk. And there you have it. The human desire to protect ourselves, to cover over the reality. That's why all sorts of scandals get hidden and covered up because we'd rather not disturb and to reveal the reality of the sin within each one of us. It confronts evil. We don't like our sin to be exposed. And it challenges the authorities. Again and again, Christ makes an authority claim. You should know this if you're not a Christian, that Christ is coming saying, I am the rightful Lord and master of your life. And with that authority claim, there is a threat to any other authority. You see this after uh, Jesus uh, performs the resurrection of Lazarus. And suddenly people are, are being drawn towards Christ because they've seen his miraculous power. And it's really fascinating, but that is the moment by which the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and the Jewish religious council come together and plot Christ's um, uh, kind of demise in John chapter 11. And they say this, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why are they wanting to kill Jesus? Why are they wanting to do something with him? It's because they, their place is threatened. It's a naked political act. They are worried about their role as leaders within the community. If Christ continues to grow in popularity, what will happen to us? The authorities are challenged. And that's why we see authorities around the world, different, whether it was in Soviet Russia back in the day or today authoritarian regimes who are threatened by Christ and those who pledge allegiance to Christ because they have said there is no other authority under which we will bow ultimately than Christ himself. The gospel is an inherently political statement. It says Christ is Lord, not Caesar. No other Lord except Christ. So we hear that Christ is hated. And then you must hear the instruction, the warning that Jesus gives in this passage. It says, if I was hated, you too will be hated. It stands to reason, doesn't it? The very things that they hate in Christ... As we become like Christ, remember the picture here, vine and branches, branches connected to the vine. You remember the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The intention is that the branches look like the vine, that you bear the character of Christ, that you grow more and more in Christ-likeness to resemble him, to carry his love and his character in various different ways. And as you do that, the very things that they hate in him, they will hate in you. And this is paradoxical. You've got to hear it. You should expect that as you bear the aroma of Christ, some will be drawn to Christ in you. They will see the beauty of Christ in you, and others will be repelled. This is how uh, Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Some... You are the aroma of life. 
your pleasant aroma as they see something about you, your willingness to forgive others, your willingness to be patient with those who are in need. They say, that smells nice. I'm attracted to that. What is it about them? And we hope that they would see something of Christ in you. And there'll be others that you are the stench of death to death. I don't know if you've ever been around a, a dead body for a long period of time, over time. It's an offense to the nostrils. It's not a good smell. If you are the smell of death, it is a repellent smell that you would just naturally just want to be away from. There'll be some who look at Christ in you, who hear the claims of Christ in you as you speak them, as you proclaim him to them, and they will be repelled. So what do we do with this? What do we do? How do we respond? There are three questions I want to ask you tonight. Are you avoiding this? Are you avoiding this? The danger is not that Christ is right, that we will be hated. The danger is that we live such lives of hatred avoidance, that we dial down our distinctiveness, and we, we actually try to actively avoid the hatred of the world, and so this warning becomes null and void. That's the first danger we have to look at. The second is, are you willing to embrace the clash between Christ, between Jesus, and the people around you? And thirdly, what kind of people does this require us to be? So, are you avoiding this? The great danger of this is that we live a kind of bland Christianity, a kind of privatised faith that intends to bear no offence to the culture. And as we seek to curate and edit the testimony that we give about Christ, such as to remove any offence from the culture we will do such a disservice to Christ. Are we avoiding this warning? You see, Jesus is saying you will be hated. You will be hated only if you are my fruitful, distinctive, and missional disciples. If you shrink back and hide your faith just to Sunday evening at 5 till 7.30, and then the rest of your week you just look like everybody else, then you won't be hated. Why? The world will love you as its own. Because you'll be pretending just to be like everybody else. You're not. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't belong here. This is not who you are. But you, if you spend the rest of the week pretending just to be like everybody else, dialing down any distinctiveness that Christ would put in you, then the world won't hate you. The world will love you as its own. The danger is that you are trying, consciously or unconsciously, to avoid this. And that is a tragedy. That is, in fact, the great threat for the church in the West today. Not that they will be killed by literal martyrdom, but instead that the faith will be snuffed out of us as we slowly shrink back and blend in with culture. That is the great danger for the church. And that's not what Christ intends us to be. How does Christ describe us in Matthew chapter 5? The salt and the light of the world. Hear what Jesus said about you. If you are a follower of Christ, this is what Jesus says about you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus is saying you are salt. And he's saying, what is it about salt? He's saying you are the distinctive flavor. You are meant to evoke a reaction. Have you ever drunk salty water by mistake? You know, you pick up a glass and maybe you didn't know, and you drink, oh, first reaction, right? Or even you eat salt, pure salt, and maybe you put too much salt on your food, and you think, there's a reaction because there's a distinctive flavor to salt, isn't it? 
Jesus is using the metaphor of salt to speak about you, saying you are meant to be distinctive, brothers and sisters. You are meant to stick out like a sore thumb. You are meant to be different to the people in the world around you. And the danger is you've forgotten that, and instead you're trying to blend in. And the problem is, if you've lost your distinctiveness, well, you might as well throw you away. Because salt, which has lost its flavor, is just, I don't know, white powder. <laughs> has no benefit in the world, for the world. Christ is saying, no, you, if you are salt, you must remain distinctive. Have you ever had a really bland meal? You know, one of those ready meals from a, from a supermarket that's not very good, and you kind of taste it, and you think, well, this is just bland. It's just rubbish. That is what Christ is saying you are in danger of becoming, just another bland meal that looks like everybody else. Instead, retain your distinctiveness. Look different. Be honest about your convictions. Be honest about how you view the world differently because it's in that difference, in that perspective in life, that actually there may be some around you who may be drawn to Christ as they see that distinctiveness. Don't dial it down. That's the whole way we're meant to reach the world as they see our difference. So salt. Secondly, he says, you are light. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. We try to dial down our distinctiveness, and the second thing we do is we privatize our faith. See, the world says we live in a secular culture. So they say, it's okay for you to have your faith as long as you keep it private, as long as you do it on your own, in your room, or in a religious gathering like this one. But don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it to your workplace. Don't bring it into a, a, kind of a gathering of different people from all different perspectives. No, your faith just belongs in the private square. But the Christian says, no, that's not possible. The, my faith must come out. The light must shine. It cannot be hidden under, on, in a basket. It must be put on a table so the whole house can see its light. You cannot privatize your faith. You cannot silence yourself or censor yourself. You know, like... Um, you see those government documents that sometimes have, um, you've got a document and they're kind of trying to redact certain information. And so you kind of have this uh, situation where you can kind of just see parts of the document and all the other parts of the document have been redacted. And sometimes we do that with our faith. We tell people about Christianity, but we redact all the bits except God is love. And that's true, and I love that, and that's the truth I will spend the rest of my life proclaiming, but there's more to it than that. God is a judge. God sees the reality of the sin in the world. If we just tell people the love of God, if we only tell them God is love, we will never confront the world with the reality that we are sinful and we need a saviour. Do not redact your faith. Do not hide your faith. How many of you have never told your colleagues you're a Christian? Don't, don't hide that reality. Let them see it. Let them see it even knowing that you're an imperfect vision of Christianity. Because actually it's in your imperfections that sometimes your friends will be, be drawn towards Christ. My colleagues, uh, various points in the, over the years, I'm not talking about in the church, but before that in secular, I was, worked for a startup before that, and um, I remember like, in the time, one of my, friend, one of my colleagues once said, I can see your faith not by in your perfect, perfect behavior, it was a high-stress environment, I was not very, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I, um, you know, but I would, might be the, not very well behaved, say, but maybe I'd have to go and apologize to someone. Or maybe I'd go off and pray, and they would see that I went off to pray because I was getting stressed. Actually, in my weakness and imperfections, they would see Christ. You don't have to be a perfect person to be a witness for Christ. So we, we, we lose our distinctiveness. We lose our light, our public faith. Why? Because there is a deep desire in all of us to be loved by the world. 
There is a deep desire in us to be loved by the world, to be thought respectable. We aspire towards respectability. And we miss the very fact that Christ wants us to live such lives that people around us, around us at least notice that we're different and potentially with that, some will hate us. Do not shrink back. Are you avoiding this warning by just trying to look like everybody else? Second of all, are you willing to embrace the inevitable clash between the person of Jesus and the world around you? You are intended to live in the fault line between Christ and the world. You know a fault line? It's kind of um, between two tectonic, tectonic plates on the Earth's surface, and with those two tectonic plates rubbing up against it, there's friction and sometimes earthquakes or volcanoes, and I'm not very jo- good at geography, so I'll leave it there. But my point is there is, there is a place of... Of, of friction, right? It's not an easy place to be, to live on the fault line. Some of you, you go to work and then you come to church and you live in these two worlds and it feels like almost disorientating because they're, they're such different environments. And that's the point, that you are intended to live in the world, but not of it. So you need to come back here to receive nourishment, refreshment, to be reminded of Christ and who he is, and then you need to go back into the world. And it will feel uncomfortable, and that's the point because you're meant to be in the world and not of it. There's an inevitable clash. You need to see, you need to lean into that difference rather than lean away from it. To live in that confrontation between Christ and the culture. That Christ is coming into our world even now. He's not just been into our world, he is speaking into our world now. And there is a confrontation between Christ and the world as a world that confronts him on a whole series of different levels. What I mean is there are things that you believe, things that you will speak of that will cause that confrontation. Let me give you a few. One is the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity that Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive claim. That will offend many of the people around you. My uh, little boy, uh, he's five years old, and I don't come from a Christian family, and he has worked out, you know, he's understood now about the Christian faith that uh, to follow Christ means the promise of spending eternity with him, to ignore Christ and reject him means the reality of spending eternity away from him, and he obviously is, is, is kind of gripped by a zeal to make sure that his family members are following Christ. And so he spent Christmas going around different family members, most of them aren't Christian, basically saying, are you a follower of Christ? <laughs> and... Um, and um, and you know what's really interesting is he offended my family with that. <laughs> that may not surprise you. Um, but my family are not easily offendable. And he offended my dad, particularly. He's a Jewish guy. And, he, and he was, he's not easily offended. If, my, if Caleb had gone up to him and been like, I don't know, you're an old man or whatever, like been cheeky, he my dad would have squeezed his cheek and said, cheeky little devil, and then run on with it. But it was his question, are you a follower of Christ? That I could just see the offense of my dad. And then he basically said like, that child needs to be less narrow-minded, or something like that. In that moment, he was offended by the, the, the implicit exclusivity that Christ makes, that says, are you a follower of Christ? Because that is, that is the only way to God. That will offend some. The second way we'll offend the culture is because we will challenge the idols. Whenever Christ is preached, he will always challenge the idols. And you see this in Acts chapter 19. 
As Paul has been preaching in different cities, he finds himself in Ephesus. And as Paul preaches about Christ, he naturally challenges the idol worship of, in that case, I think it's Diana, the the god who is worshipped in Ephesus. And this is what he said. Um, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, oh sorry, Artemis, a man made, named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. There he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's, this is what, this is what you look here, that God's made with human hands, with hands, are not God's. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Saying, if Paul keeps preaching that the gods who are made with hands, these, these gods that we worship, Artemis for example, If he keeps preaching, no one's going to be worshipping Artemis. Our gods are threatened, our livelihood in that case, because they are literally making little shrines, but also their whole way of life built around the worship of the goddess Artemis is threatened. And in fact, the whole town is whipped up into quite a riot as they shout together in the the great uh, kind of arena, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And and Paul has to be basically pulled away because they don't want him to go in there because he'll be uh, killed probably by the mob. And what is fascinating is, as Paul preaches Christ, he inevitably has to challenge the idols. He has to say, no, you cannot worship these gods that are made with human hands. Instead, you must worship Christ. And there is an inherent confrontation there. So too, as we preach Christ to our culture, there is an inherent confrontation between Christ and the gods that the people of our culture worship. We worship, we live in a secular culture. You might say, well, we don't worship anything. But we know in reality that all people need something to live their lives by. Something that they attach significance towards, which they say, this is the thing that I need. This is the thing that gives my life meaning and purpose. This is the thing that I live for. That is a universal human trait that we must all find something to worship and depend on. And in our culture, we might say it's sexual pleasure, for example. And so as you worship Christ, for example, many of you are single, and as you choose to walk in singleness, and sorry, as you choose to walk in uh, sexual faithfulness, as you choose not to sleep around in your singleness, you are preaching to the world with your life that sexual pleasure is not the ultimate thing to live for, that Christ is great, not sexual pleasure. And sometimes you might even say it. You wouldn't just, you wouldn't just have to, to make that choice, but you might also explain to your colleagues or your friends, hey, look, I don't feel the need to sleep with anyone because actually I've found something far greater that I don't need to live for sexual pleasure because I've found Christ and Christ is everything I need. And so with your life, you have a constant choice to lift up Christ and to say with that that everything else you worship isn't worth it in comparison. Great is Christ not sexual pleasure. Great is Christ, not money. Great is Christ, not status. Every time, as we choose to reject the idols of the world, as we sometimes, with our lives, choose to reject those idols and say, look, I don't need to live for career success or status. I'm happy to accept what I receive, and I'm not going to you know, use sharp elbows to try and destroy my colleagues. I don't need to worry about status. I'm happy for other people to get the credit for this project or that project. 
Why? Because I don't need to worship those things. Because I found a satisfaction in Christ. I found a love that is better than life. So I don't worship those, and instead I worship Christ. And that is a wonderful opportunity we each have to challenge the idols. But as you do that, there will be some who say, why are you not worshipping my idol? Again, not to keep going on about my father. At one point he said to me, I don't mind that you follow Christ, but it's the way you do it, the intensity with which you do it, the fact that you would say yes to Christ and no to X or Y. Can't you have this and that? You say, no, to follow Christ means to say no to that. I don't need that. So you too, as you say no to those things, will preach that Christ is better. And this was always part of the plan, brothers and sisters, that as you worship Christ, as you choose him, you may be forced to choose between Christ and the people you love. As the people you love do not respond well to your choice of following Christ. And Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 10. Those of us who are doing the uh, community Bible reading, you might have read it um, in our plan. And it says this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. How are you going to do that? How are you going to be willing to even face the fact that some of the people you love might not love the fact that you follow Christ, and may in fact turn against you? Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The choice to obey Christ, the choice to continue to worship him, even when the people around you are offended or reject you as you do so, is ultimately a question, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Is he worth you being willing to lose friendships? to lose the people you love, to lose the approval of the people around you. That is the question that Christ's warning here, you will be hated, forces you to ask. Do you love Christ enough to be willing to put those other things on the altar? I think every one of us will be forced to choose at different points. Do you love Christ enough to be willing to suffer for him? You suffer for those you love. If you're a parent, there's a lot of suffering involved in parenthood. No one really tells you about it, but you lose sleep and all sorts of other things. And and why do you do it? Well, you do it because you love your children. It comes second nature. You suffer for those you love. And so too, as we follow Christ, the question is, are you willing to suffer for him? Are you willing to suffer the rejection of the people around you because you love him? That is the question that Christ would ask you. Not that Christ doesn't want you to love your family or your friends who even might reject you, but to love him more than their love. So finally then, what does Christ require of us if this is true? What kind of people do we need to be to respond rightly to this warning? The first is that we need to be confident of whose we are and who we are in order to be willing to stand against the potential rejection of the people around us, we need to be absolutely confident that we do not belong in this world. That we are not, that this is not our home. That we live here, but we are exiles. That our home is with Christ in heaven. And that that identity, that statement of who we are, is much more significant than any other identity that we might take on. 
Hear these words that that Peter writes about us. They are powerful. He says, but you are a chosen race. Do you feel like that? Christ chose each one of you. You are a royal priesthood. Think about the significance. You're a royal priesthood, a priesthood in the house of God, each one of you, made to worship him and enjoy him. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, one whom Christ would say, you are mine. That you, pro- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That is who you are. Do not give in to any other lesser identity. Do not allow any other identity or any other place to take over in a higher sense of belonging. You belong first and foremost to Christ. He is the one who you owe your highest loyalty to. Second of all, he needs fearless people. In order to be able to respond to the rejection of the world, we need to be fearless. We need to be those kind of people who are not shaped by the opinions of others, who are not controlled by the fear of whether or not people like us. And there is a deep desire within many of us to be liked by the people around us. And I believe strongly that Christ wants to liberate us from the fear of man. And this is not just a one-time thing, or that might be the first time you're hearing this. This is an ongoing journey in the Christian life of learning to not be controlled by the opinions of others and instead to be controlled by God's opinion of you. The antidote to the judgment of others, of worrying about what other people think of you, and some of us, we go to bed at night worrying what they think of us, we wake up in the morning worrying what they think of us. The antidote to that fear is knowing that they are not the judge of your life. Instead, the living God is the true judge of your life. These words mean so much to me that Paul speaks of this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's a very small thing. Whatever you think, it's a very small thing to me. In love, it's a very small thing what you think of me. I'm choosing to believe that, and I will choose to believe that every day. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I I won't even be obsessed with what I think of myself. I'm not even going to be controlled by my own judgment of myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The Lord who judges me, not your colleagues. Not that person who you worry about, what they think of you. It is the Lord who judges you. This is why Jesus, by the way, tells them earlier on to abide in his love. The great antidote to the opinion of the world is a deeper and deeper saturation in the love of Christ. The more you know the love of Christ, the more you wake up in the morning and are rejoicing in that love, the more you don't really care what other people think of you. He wants to make fearless people who are not trying to prove themselves to the world because they are abiding in his love and they know that he is the true judge of their lives. Next, that they know they are servants. You see, one of the reasons we resent suffering is actually pride, because we kind of say, look, who are you to make me suffer, God? And we raise our fists in kind of pride towards him. Actually, the servant, the humble person says, okay, God, I'll take this suffering. You're the master, I'm the servant. That's how he describes you in this passage. So I'm going to accept whatever you give me, whatever you take away from me, because I'm, I'm your servant, you're the master. So I'm willing to lay these things down, to risk these things, because I'm just a servant. Next, to understand and respond rightly to this warning, 
We need to be people of sacrificial love. There's such a danger as you hear that the world will hate you that you respond in resentment and withdrawal. But that's not how Christ responds to the hatred of the world. How does Christ respond to the hatred, to the rejection of the people of Israel at the time? He goes to the cross to them. As the world hates him, as the mob cries for his blood and resents him and cries for his crucifixion, Christ moves resolutely resolutely towards the cross. Christ meets the hatred of the world with with his love, with his willingness to lay down his life out of love for the very people who are crucifying him. Isn't that incredible? Christ's love for those who hate him. And that is the same love that Christ would compel us out into the world, that we would, by his grace, experience his love for the people who might reject us. That Christ would empower us and send us out with the confidence that we have been set apart as his witnesses, called to love the world, even though we might be hated. That's why earlier in this passage, from last week, he reminded them what love is. Love is not just, I like you a little bit. Love is, greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. And so too, as we look at Christ, as we see the great hero of history willing to lay down his life for his friends, so too we take that same sacrificial love, we receive it from Christ, and then we take it into the world And we let that propel us towards our colleagues and our friends, even though they might reject us. That is the great mission that God has called us to. To love the world, to be desiring their salvation, to be willing to be distinctive, to be those set apart as witnesses, and to do it all out of love. If you feel no desire for this, I would start by asking God for his love again asking that he would break your heart even, that he would change your heart for the people around you, that you might carry the sacrificial love of Christ for the people around you. It begins there. And finally, and here's the great news that you must remember. The last thing that Christ needs from us is to know that we are dependent. To know that we are dependent Even in this passage, he speaks about it as the Holy Spirit who will reach the world. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It is God himself who is reaching the world, and he may choose to use you and me in our weakness. No, he does choose to use you and me in our weakness. As you abide, it is he who will bear fruit in your life. As you remain connected to him, he is the one who will bear fruit through you in the lives of the people around you. The, the, The pressure is off. As we hear this great call, as we hear the invitation to be about Christ's mission of making disciples in the world, it is not on our shoulders. You do not need to change anyone. You simply need to be obedient. You simply need to be faithful. You simply need to abide, remaining connected to him. So there's two really responses here. There'll be some of you in this room who need to repent, who need to repent of of denying Christ with your words or holding back from witness, from hiding a light under a bushel and not embracing the call to be his distinctive people. That's the first thing. And the second thing is a call, an invitation to dependence, a call to be those who say, Christ, I want this, but oh, 
Lord, I need you. I need your spirit. I need your help. That is the cry of the Christian in this way. God, I want to bear fruit. Would you come and bear fruit in my life? That is our prayer every day. God, would you use me in my weakness to draw others towards you?